Good morning. Glad you're with us today. Let me draw your attention to the front page of the bulletin. Uh, it is a reminder of a big date coming. February 12th is our Super Service Sunday. Uh, we've not done this since COVID, and we're glad to be able to resume this wonderful day of outreach. Uh, we'll be using a lot of our small groups organizationally, as well as an opportunity for everyone to be involved in this. Uh, we are taking care of our own members, but we're also reaching out to the community. You'll hear more details about that, but for now, just mark the date, February 12th, and be listening for more. Also, welcome to an amazing second row over here. Our 2023 summer interns are here with us this weekend. Uh, Barrett invites them in for kind of a weekend of orientation. They met the staff Friday when they came to town. Uh, they are going to quickly make their way to the teen center because they're here to meet the youth. So uh, you probably won't get a chance to meet them yourself, but just know they're here. Uh, and if you do see them, parents, you might want to make your way to the teen center, at least after class, so you can introduce yourself. We are so excited that y'all are here, but more so excited about the summer and have been praying for y'all already. Uh, also, I heard great report from the new ladies class that started uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, a great crowd was there, um, 30, I think 40, counting all the kids that were, were there, um, and, and we're grateful for that. A lot of good things are, are going on. I thought with the new year, a, a study, a short series about a new start, a new beginning would be ideal. And what better story of new beginnings than the story of Ruth? And it's a short book, so it'll be a short series, only three lessons. If you've never studied the book of Ruth, it is truly a, a wonderful story. I want to encourage you this week to read the book. Four chapters, it will not take you that long. Uh, Ten minutes, maybe 15 if you take a popcorn break, you know. Uh, I, I think you can handle it, but it's a great story. It's good to know the whole story. It has loss. It has heartbreak. It has love, it has some day-to-day -day boring routine, it has hope, it's a story of patience. It truly has a lot in just uh, four short chapters. But what you see most of all, which I think makes most beautiful in this book, is God is working all along the way. And I want us to see how he's involved in our lives as well. So this morning, open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. The, the verses are going to be on the screen if that helps you. Uh, the setting, if that helps, is just after Judges, Judges. So you read through the Torah and you get to Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then there's the short chapter of Ruth. If you're flipping your Bible, it's one of those real easy to flip over because it's just a few pages. But to understand the setting of the story of Ruth... The last verse of the last chapter of Judges really tells us what's going on. Judges was a very dark time in Israel's history, and that's the context. Look on the screen, Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you read those words and think, wow, that sounds like our country more and more? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. When we leave God out and ignore his commands, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's the setting in these dark days of Judges. But there's a spark of hope in the book of Ruth, and I want us to see that. Now, 
I want you to see the book of Ruth begins with a Jewish family leaving their homeland, going to a godless land in search of food. The father's name is Elimelech. He has two sons. They move to Moab. They're not very well liked there. They're really enemies of the people. They're kind of, we're going to study that more in our small groups tonight, the backstory of why there was such enmity there. And we're going to see a lot of different problems that this family encounters. So this morning, I want to walk through three uh, lessons uh, that we get from chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles open to Ruth, you can just kind of follow along, or they'll be on the screen as well. Lesson number one is this. God is in the middle of our difficult choices. God is in the middle of our difficult choices. I want you to notice in the book of Ruth how many choices are made. And then we see the consequences of those choices. Look at verses 1 and 2, how the, how the book opens. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in, Ju- in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah that went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, Ephrathites means nothing to us, but if you studied Old Testament history before, you might remember that's an ancient name of Bethlehem. So it's just kind of another way of saying they are from Bethlehem. And again, Moab at that time would have been a very fertile area, a, a very agricultural area. But the decision for this family to move there was not based on spiritual maturity. It was not an act of faith. In fact, it was just the opposite. Scholars will explain that a famine would either be a spiritual test or a chastisement of God. And if you go back and you read the Torah, especially Leviticus 26, God just spells it out. If you do not keep my commands, and he gives the conditions of a famine, that would happen. The people of Israel would have known this. And during a famine was God's way of rebuking the nation. Either way, the correct response should have been to remain and endure or and nothing else, what God would want, to turn to God in repentance. You might remember back in Genesis when the famine hit, and the only one who had uh, grain was Egypt. So there was Jacob, and, and Joseph was in Egypt and had the land, and all of his brothers were saying, Dad, you need to go, you need to go, this is where we can survive. He wouldn't go. Do you remember that? Until he prayed to God, and God in a vision told him it was okay to go. So that's kind of a little bit of the backstory of what's going on here. Because the way Ruth opens, it sounds like it's a bad time. He went to where there was food. But there's more going on than that. Instead of turning to God, Elimelech moved his family to an unfriendly pagan country, facing the possibility if they ever did return again, they may not be accepted. Or at least would have a hard time, possibly facing all kinds of ridicule from his own people for leaving. Well, after a short time, the Bible tells us that Elimelech dies. Look in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Very sad turn in the story. You might remember this about the story. Seems sudden. We don't hear anything about an illness or any kind of extended issue. Kind of out of the blue. And here they are in a strange land, 
and the husband does. No support from family, no support for friends. And as you read this, some of you are thinking, I know what that's like. Because you've lost a spouse. You, you know that kind of deep pain of loss. And our hearts hurt with you. Just recently, an elder and I were just talking about, we were reflecting on some of our dear West 7th folks who have passed on. And just very quickly, we were just naming one after another, men and women who've gone to be with the Lord. And there's a sense of sadness there because we miss them so. So in reading through this short book, those of you who've lost a spouse, you most of all know how even in a sense of tragedy, good can come. You can actually... uh, since God working even in that. It's not overnight, it takes time, but you know the good shepherd loves you and never abandons you, never will abandon you. We'll look at a second observation, just straight from the text. Number two, God can work in spite of our bad choices. Now, what happens next seems almost natural, but that doesn't mean it's right or godly. These sons are grown and they choose to marry. Look in verse four. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, And the name of the other was Ruth. Now the sons make a bad decision in marrying these foreign women, violating God's command. Now, I want to make sure we're clear about this. God's command not to intermarry was not about ethnicity. Never has been, never will be. It was about theology. We just studied the story of Joshua and especially about Rahab. How she was a Gentile, and yet she was accepted into the family of God because she came to believe in God. God is not biased against anyone. He wants everyone to be saved. But God would not accept or condone worship of false gods. That's who God is. God knows the danger and the power of these false religions. And he knows how much a close relationship, especially like marriage can impact your spiritual standing. It can weaken the resolve of the godly. And it can empower the influence of the wicked. Throughout the Old Testament, you read that again and again, the consequences of those spiritually mixed marriages. How marrying someone of a pagan faith had devastating effects on godly people. Well, what do we know about these Moabites, the people who lived in Moab? Well, they were idolaters. One of their gods required human sacrifices. That's like a, a, just a small window into how deviant these people were. And no doubt marrying people with these beliefs and practices would have brought that kind of thinking, their foreign gods, their different ways of thinking, into the home, into their practices. And while not every choice is so consequential, This one specifically violated God's command. The Old Testament is very clear about this. Look on the screen at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons. And he gives the reason why, verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Even in the New Testament, Paul talked about marrying in the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And if that doesn't include the marriage relationship, I'm not sure what to think about that. Spiritually, what the Bible is teaching us is that's a bad choice. It's an unwise decision. 
And yet Malin and Kilian both decide to marry women who did not share their faith in God. Did God approve of that choice? No. But can God use that wrong choice to bring about good? Absolutely. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. It may take time. It may take some pain and some correction and some rerouting. But God can work good out of what Satan intends for evil. Again, we see that throughout Scripture. It's like the young Christian couple I read about. Only been married about six months. And they were just bickering and fighting constantly. It was not going well. Finally, one night, the exasperated young wife said to her frustrated husband, I've got a solution. Let's both pray that one of us dies, and then I'll go live with mom and dad. (laughs) Doesn't work that way, does it? Look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 4. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Kilian died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the story goes from bad to worse. And I want you to notice the words here on the screen in your Bible. When the sons die, Naomi's life, look how it's described, left without her two sons and her husband. It doesn't read left with only her two daughters-in-law. Why? Well, it's not because of a poor relationship. We know that when we read on in the story. Because when you've suffered loss, no one immediately thinks positively. I mean, when you're in the middle of that pain, that devastation, you're shocked. I mean, you're numb. All you can think about is what you don't have. All you can think about is is this, this terrible circumstance that you're in. You're devastated. She was left without her two sons and her husband. Can we even begin to put ourselves in Naomi's situation, losing both her husband and now both sons? Here are three widowed women left alone to survive in a man's world. It truly goes from bad to worse. It had to be a low point. And I wonder, because the text doesn't say, but did Naomi ever question God? Why? Why did this happen? Is it because they broke your command about marriage? Is it because we left our homeland and came to a foreign land? Why did you permit the famine in the first place, God? Why did you let it last so long? My whole life is just one big mess, one loss after another. God, is this my fault? I wonder what Naomi was thinking. Because life can throw us all sorts of roadblocks and detours. We all know we're going to die one day. We know that, but we don't expect it today, not out of the blue. And so when this happens, we are in shock. Some of these detours in life are just major inconveniences, but sometimes they're devastating. But all of them require us to navigate our way through. You ever been buzzing through the interstate in a town that you're not that familiar with and it's thick traffic and you you see the HOV lane over to the left and you think, well, they're buzzing on. I'm going to get on the HOV lane and just kind of make my way. Or you ever seen one of those express lanes? Man, those are fantastic. You ever see one of those like you can just go. But there's a caveat to using those lanes. You do need to be familiar, at least know when your exit is coming, right? 
Because you have to allow enough time with the traffic to get over in time to take your exit. Or, just because you're making good time in that fast lane, you can drive right past your exit, have to go way out of your way and circle back and actually lose time. Because you're not sure how to navigate that. What you thought was a good decision turns out to be a poor decision. Think about what we know in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, there we see people getting back on the right path. There's Jonah. There's the prodigal son. There's Paul, called himself the chief of sinners. There's Peter, story after story. And regardless of the wrong choices you've made, the truth of Scripture is it's never too late to get back on course. Look on the screen in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. After urging Christians to pray for all people, Paul gives the why. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's a great scripture to help us to see the right theology about God. God wants everybody to be saved. He wants you praying for them, all of us. That's who he is. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God wants all people to be saved. I hope you know that. And he's very patient with that. But with every choice we make, whether big or small, good or bad, God is working behind the scenes trying to bring about good. Sometimes we can't even see what he's doing. But you can make certain of this. God will allow you to make your own choices, but that doesn't mean he can't bring about some good even when you make the wrong choice. So in the first chapter, we see God's in the middle of difficult choices. We see God can work in spite of our bad choices. And I want to hone in on this third lesson. God will lead us in our important choices. See, of all your choices that you make, they all begin in your mind with your thinking. What are you thinking about? What's your priorities? What do you believe? That's why Colossians 3.2 is so important. Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So our actions, our, our, our choices, they begin with our thoughts. What's important? What is in your faith system? Because even with those little choices, little decisions, the effects can ripple out and affect so much of life. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. And we understand the truth of that. It's about a choice and a consequence. The parallel of Scripture is you reap what you sow. And we understand that to be true. But it starts with our thinking. You think then you, you, you sow, then you reap. I think it was Stephen Covey who said this, sow a thought, reap a deed, sow a deed, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. What are you sowing? What are you sowing? You reap what you sow? Well, to answer that is, what are you thinking? Because it all starts up here. What do you believe? What's your priorities? Look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Then verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So Naomi makes a decision because she gets word that back home things are better. The famine has lessened. God's blessed his people. So she decides to return and she gives her daughters-in-law an out. I'm going home, but you don't have to go with me. You can go back to your homes, your parents, your family. Look at verses 9 through 13. She says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Then verse 13. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, from the text, we don't know if Naomi was complicit in this decision to leave the homeland and move to Moab. Or was she just following the lead of her husband? We don't know that. We don't know that she encouraged her sons to marry these pagan wives. The text doesn't say. What we do know, as one commentary so well explained, Naomi was facing the consequences of sinful decisions of her husband and son. And yet somehow, somehow Naomi was able to remain strong in her faith and obedience to God. I want to make sure that we get that. So Naomi is trying to reason with her, da- her two daughters-in-law, saying, you go back to your people. You go back to a life in your world. Because she knows if they come with her to Bethlehem, back to the homeland, she knows they're going to be saying no to their own family forever. I mean, you just kind of close the door on that. They're saying no to marrying again. Nobody's going to marry them. They're pagan. They're pagan. They'd be saying no to any resemblance of a certain future. So much was tied in to what's happening here. God is still working in our decisions now. I hope you're making the application as we're kind of going through this chapter. And he always makes that clear. Look at Ruth chapter 1. I put on the screen just some of the phrases. Verse 8, may the the Lord has visited his people and given them food. Verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest. You hear this talk about God working in their lives, blessing them. God is working in Naomi, through Naomi. Even to kind of bless the daughters-in-law here. They all just don't know the extent of it yet. Just read a few chapters in, and we're going to read more about this. But don't miss this. God wants to be involved in our decisions, too. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. He's a powerful God, but he's a personal God. He wants to be your God, involved in your life. Now look at this next passage, because you may have heard it before. Ruth chapter 1, verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What an incredible moment. Aren't you grateful that that's recorded in Scripture for us today? Now, it's not uncommon for us to hear this passage read at weddings. In fact, that may be where you heard it first, at, at, at a wedding. And I wonder if there's sometimes people in an audience at a wedding, and they're hearing this wonderful, meaningful, powerful words, realizing that in the original story, the original context, it's the relationship between a woman and her mother-in-law. Not between a husband and wife. And yet, these words are most fitting for a wedding ceremony. Because at a wedding, you are entering into a till-death-do-us-part relationship. So when you hear these words, let it remind you of this deep level of commitment and loyalty and goodness that you need to bring into a relationship, especially a marriage covenant. So Ruth is saying, I choose you, Naomi. I choose Israel over my homeland, Moab. I choose your people over my people. And she's given up her spiritual heritage, her, her faith of her upbringing, saying, I choose your God over my gods. You ever wonder why? Why did Orpah go back and Ruth not? What was the difference here? It had to be so tempting to return home like Orpah did. But do you think Ruth heard and started to believe the stories about Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood? Did she know about Abraham and Sarah? Did she know the stories about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, about Moses crossing the Red Sea, and about Joshua and the sun standing still? And all these stories about the one true God, could it be a combination of hearing these amazing stories, maybe from Naomi herself, and then witnessing Naomi's strong faith and the way she was able to deal with these incredible, devastating circumstances? Because this proclamation, your God will be my God, is quite a statement. I mean, why didn't she say, well, why did your God allow all this to happen? That's not what she's thinking. Is she not thinking that way because Naomi wasn't thinking that way? Responding that way? At first glance, it might even appear that Ruth's commitment to God was more about her commitment to Naomi. Like, whatever you want is what I want. I'm just going to go with you. And she kind of throw the God in there in the mix. But let's be real about this. Because sometimes we see that in our friendships, you ever had a spiritual relationship with someone, you brought them to faith, and there is a relational bond, a very unique relational bond that happens in that friendship when you also share those spiritual truths with one another. And so just as with Ruth and Naomi, that original connection sometimes may begin with a human relationship before it becomes a spiritual one with the one true God. Now, connecting someone to God is the ultimate goal. We know that, but often it begins 
with a friendship, of being truly interested in becoming a friend with that person. I put a quote, I think I put it on the screen, uh, author Roberta Kuhn said it like this, I have come to discover that sometimes people will come to love me before they come to love my Savior. I think she's right about that. I can't help but think that that's sort of what's happening here, what's taking place here in Ruth chapter 1. Look at verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So why did Ruth go against her heritage, her spiritual upbringing, go with Naomi? Was it because she saw something real, something sincere in Naomi? No doubt Ruth saw Naomi's selfless love. You go home. You go back with your people. I was talking last night about Facebook with someone and has its good things and its not so good things. There is, at least of late, to me, a never-ending challenge of fake accounts. Has that ever happened to you? It's not just politicians or athletes or, or celebrities that get hacked. I mean, it, it happens to the best of us. You ever get a friend request from someone like, oh, yeah, I want to be, wait, wait, I think I am their friend on Facebook. And when that happens, it happened to me recently. Someone let me know that my account got hacked, and so I had to go change my password. And, and then I had to post to everybody, like, don't accept that, because what happens with that, sometimes you'll see your friend, and they're posting a picture, or they're making a statement that you think, that's not that's not my friend. You know, that, they wouldn't post that. That is not them. Or, or worse, sometimes it's a, hey, there's a message in there. Like, um, th- things are going bad and, um, you know, it's, things are kind of desperate and I'm kind of in short for money. Could you wire me $500? I hope you know better than to fall for that. I hope you know, if you ever get a message from me on Facebook saying, hey, I'm desperate and I need you to wire me $500, no, that is not me because I would ask for cash, you know. Uh, don't bother with wiring. I don't do the gift cards. Just, just give me the money. Here's what's so bothersome. These accounts with your good name on them are fake. They're fake. And think about it. Does that not remind you of exactly how Satan operates? Posing as something he's not? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Posing as something he's not to trick you, to catch you off guard, and he'll deceive you. You know what's so wrong about these fake Facebook accounts? Someone is exploiting a real relationship. They know they can take your name and the people whom you love and they love you, and they can take your name and deceive others. But it's fake. It's not real. Think about it. You wonder if Jesus ever feels that way about people who claim to follow him, and yet they're not. They're not real about it at all. Those who say they are completely committed followers of Jesus, but Jesus is not fooled. He knows if it's a fake 
account a fake relationship, when they're living for themselves more than loving others, when they're refusing to forgive, when they're going through the motions but inside they're judging others, when they appear so Christ-like, when others are listening and watching, but deep down inside there's no humility, there's no, there's no self-denial, there's no sincerity, there's no selfless love. Simply put, it's not real, it's fake. Jesus made one of the most sobering statements in Scripture in Matthew 7, verse 21. You're familiar with this. Now, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, a fake account is not a real relationship. Lip service on Sunday, in front of your family and friends, posing, trying to be a part. That is not following Jesus. It's looking like it, but it is not real. What I hope you learn from chapter 1, really the whole story of Ruth, really the story of Scripture, everyone must make a choice. And I hope you'll make the right choice. The story of Ruth is about new beginnings. New beginnings. Doesn't that sound good? A new beginning. A do-over. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. That's who God is. This morning we're going to sing a song and encourage you. And if you need a new beginning... In your walk with life, just to rededicate your life, say, Lord, I want to be more. I want to make the right choices. Or if you've not yet made the choice for Jesus to be first in your life, acknowledge, confess that he is the Son of God. Let him make you a new creature in baptism and give you his Holy Spirit. If we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?